Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. The ISO with Dan Dickow and SB Live Sports, brought to you by the Believe Podcast Network, the number one podcast network for professionals. Here's Dickow from the deep corner of the break. Uh-oh, uh-oh. It's all now. Downtown Dan connects. Every morning when I'm working out, I'm listening to your podcast. Keep up the great work. I mean, I've seen Dan Dickow hit some big shots in the NCAA tournament. <laughs> I got to salute you, man. Like, I've been watching you since I was in high school trying to mimic all your moves. Our pod is partnering with PlayActionPools.com this season to bring some interactive fun to the sport we love most. You'll be able to get in on the action with our PlayActionPools.com football pick'em challenge, which is open to everyone. Here's how it works. Sign up for our contest, Believe Football Pick'em, at PlayActionPools.com, and then get your picks in each week. We're going to select the 10 highest profile games of the week between NFL and college football. Whoever gets the most picks correct each week will win a pair of electric sunglasses and a pair of DC shoes. So go to playactionpools.com and sign up for the contest, Believe Football Pick'em. That's B-L-E-A-V, Football Pick'em. And if you plan on hosting your own football contest, go to playactionpools.com today. They've got Survivor, Pick'em, as well as a cool sportsbook-style concept called Build Your Bankroll. PlayActionPools.com, your new home for all your office sports pools. Welcome to another episode of the ISO with myself, your host, Dan Dickow, for SB Live Sports. All right, today's Wednesday, Wednesday, September. September 15th, 2021, and on Wednesdays, it is now Mailbag Wednesdays, where have some comments, some questions that come in from listeners, such as yourself, asking about my take or asking questions about something pertaining to my previous career as a player or current career as a broadcaster, or my work with SB Live Sports and what my thoughts may be on that topic, that conversation. So, For today's, we've got three questions. First question will be from Kathy in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. And she asks, what's the first game winner you ever hit? Did you ever have a walk-off home run when you were playing baseball growing up or maybe even a hole-in-one? Well, Kathy, that's a good question. Uh, I do not honestly remember the first game winner that I have ever had. Um, But I do know that I always was comfortable um, being put in a position to have to make a play uh, in crunch time of the game, whether it was baseball in Little League, whether it was basketball growing up in, in high school or college or in the NBA. I always wanted to be somebody that um, had the ball in my hands in, in decision-making crunch time. So um, with in regards to uh, any particular instances or circumstances, I, I know in college I hit a number of, of buzzer beaters uh, at the end of halves or at the end of the game 
uh, to kind of uh, propel us into halftime with momentum. I know uh, I hit a couple in particular. I remember one against University of San Francisco at home in the old Kennel Martin Center in Spokane where uh, it was a tight game. I hit a pull-up three in transition uh, literally right as the buzzer went off. Uh, Hit one against New Mexico on the road uh, at the end of the first half on ESPN, a big Monday game that would have provided a spark for us going into halftime. Um, I know I hit game game winners or game ceiling baskets uh, during my time at Gonzaga. I remember one clearly. Uh, it was a 1-4 isolation set against San Diego, which would have been, I believe, my junior year. But um, game game clock was winding down and had an isolation set at the top and hit a three-pointer to solidify the win for Gonzaga. I remember a senior year, at the Great Alaska Shootout, uh, another kind of game, um, kind of ceiling driving layup against Texas. So I've always been comfortable taking shots, um, and I've always wanted the pressure of it, and I've always uh, been willing to accept uh, the consequences if we miss, if I miss, whether it's in uh, my own frustrations, whether it's in teammates' frustrations, or watching it in film session uh, the next couple days and knowing that I did something incorrect, I was always willing to take that on. In the NBA, it was similar. I wasn't put in as many of those moments, um, but I, I am confident saying I never shied away from them. Uh, a, a unique and exciting stat that I'm still um, included in um, to this day. I'm one of two players in NBA history, Luka Doncic being the other one, um, that has hit two go-ahead three-pointers in the final minute of a game uh, to clinch uh, a victory. And I remember that clearly. I was with the New Orleans Hornets, and it was against the Los Angeles Clippers. I hit two threes. Um, first to put us up, Clippers came down and scored. Then I hit another three, um, probably I want to say the last 10 minutes or so to seal the win. So there was two threes made in the final minute of the game that were go-ahead baskets. Again, one of only two players in NBA history to do that, Luka Doncic being the other. I think it's a that's a pretty cool stat for something pretty cool to be involved with uh, and be recognized for um, you know that I don't want to call it an accomplishment or that feat during an NBA game in my career. You know, in regards to, you know, a walk-off home run or a hole-in-one, you know, I do love to play golf. I've had one true hole-in-one in my career um, of playing golf. It was at the eighth hole at Royal Oaks in Vancouver, Washington, which is a tremendous hole. It's about a 180-yard uphill par Three. I was playing with my wife. I was playing with my brother-in-law, and one of my good friends was in the group behind me. Um, and he was standing there watching, as was my wife and, and my brother-in-law. I hit it. I said, "That looks good. I think it's in." Well, lo and behold, walk up to the hole because it's a two-tiered green and it's uphill. You couldn't see it. Lo and behold, walk up and. The ball was in the bottom of the cup. That was pretty fun. The other hole-in-one I had, I don't necessarily count. It was on a pitch-and-putt par-3 course in San Diego. Uh, it was about a 50-yard hole. I was playing with my dad and 
teammate at Gonzaga, Blake Stepp at the time. We were in town early for the WCC Awards banquet before the conference tournament started. We had an afternoon of, of nothing to do. So we went and rented a couple clubs and played at this pitch and putt course. And I believe it was the ninth hole. Uh, I flew it in. It was about a 50-yard hole. It landed in the cup. Uh, so that was a pretty good memory. As far as a walk-off, uh, growing up playing Little League Baseball, I only hit two home runs over the fence, uh, but I think my biggest claim to fame as a baseball player was had the opportunity, the chance to take batting practice with the Seattle Mariners um, when Richie Sexton was their first baseman. Richie was a friend of mine or is a friend of mine. He went to Prairie High School a little bit before me. He invited me up to take batting practice before the game, and uh, I hit one out. It was pretty darn cool. It's uh, It's a sports accomplishment moment that doesn't really matter um but i think it was pretty cool i was excited about it still am proud of it to this day i hit a home run over the left field fence over the bullpen fence Uh, i have the video of it somewhere i'm gonna have to find it track it down and maybe post it on social media one of these days next question comes in from jake in san diego what are there what are the differences between the way Mark Coach Few coached you and your group versus now? Uh, Jake, I think this is a tremendous question. I, I get asked this uh, quite frequently. I've touched on it on a number of different um, podcasts in the past, as well as I've touched on it in uh, live game broadcasts uh, that I cover for Gonzaga. Um, Coach Few has stayed the same person in regards to. Uh, his commitment to winning, his commitment to helping his players become better uh, as to, to maximize their potential, um, but also stayed true in his commitment to, to maximizing the potential of each particular team. That has never changed with Coach Few, ever. Um, he's a tremendous motivator. He's a tremendous uh, coach in regards to he can pinpoint one or two things in each guy's game that can really make a difference for them and the team. He can pinpoint one or two things for the team in each game that they really need to do to have success. And then he can pinpoint one or two things offensively and defensively in the short term during a season that a team has to become really good at if they're going to become good uh, or great during the course of a season. And he's got a couple things that each year are, are non-negotiables. Um, they're going to be great defensively and offensively. They're going to be great at sharing the ball, moving the ball, and, and playing for each other, being selfless. Those things don't change with Coach Few. But I think in regards to uh, what the question Jake poses and asking where Coach Few has gotten better, I think you just look at the overall uh, difference offensively and defensively in what the program does. Early on in Coach Few's um, coaching career when I played, uh, I was a redshirt his first year, and then I played for Coach Few for two years, so it would have been his second and third year. We were still running a lot of flex offense. We would run entries into flex uh, and then run flex over and over down screen, uh, or excuse me, cross screen on the baseline to get a cutter through and then down screen and then uh, options off of it if they switched these were switch counters and what we would do um so we ran a lot of what i what i said was flex and sets into flex so you run the set see if you get anything quick and then it gets in to where you have your five basic uh spots in flex and you would run it over and over until you got an open look or the defense made a switch and then you would read it 
you would come up with a switch counter and, and typically create an open shot. So we ran a lot of that. We ran a lot of motion offense where many people call it blocker mover offense where um, someone has a ball and there's two blockers or screeners and two movers, guys that are coming off the screens. And Coach Few never used that terminology, blocker, screener. Um, he, he more talked about it as read and react. He, for every action, there's a reaction. If this guy has the ball and we've got a screen action going here, you two need to do a great job of communicating and understanding what we need to do. If you're a screener, know the angle you got to take. Uh, know if you're, gar- if you're setting a screen for a shooter, such as maybe a Blake Step, uh, uh, if you're setting a screen for them, you want to set the angle of the screen in this way because they're probably going to pop or come off the screen as a shooter as opposed to if you're setting a screen for a guy such as during my time I played Alex Hernandez or Anthony Reason there where they would be a curl guy and they would try to take the defense uh, with them to move the defense. So he would do a great job of talking about when we're in our motion offense, we need to read and react. We need to set screens at angles and, and figure out uh, where are we going? Are we are we a shooter? Are we getting space to create shots? Are we a, a curl guy to create movement within the defense to create another opportunity? So we ran a lot of those type of actions. We also ran a, a number of sets, um, but not a ton of sets. We were a lot of flex, a lot of motion. Um, it, we did not run a lot of pick and rolls. Um, there is another, um, there, there's somebody who uh, does a tremendous breakdown um, of Gonzaga basketball right now. His name is Stephen Carr, uh, K-A-R-R. He has a Twitter uh, account. He also does uh, some occasional podcasts and some video breakdowns of, of Gonzaga basketball. And, and he came out uh, with a breakdown on Gonzaga's offense over the years and, and where they created opportunities and how many post-ups they would run versus how many pick and rolls that they would run. And the amount of pick and rolls that they run now as opposed to 20 years is night and day. Um, you know, we did not run a lot of pick and rolls. If push came to shove and the shot clock was winding down, uh, I'd run a pick and roll or I'd have a one low, one four low set. Um, but when you look at what Gonzaga does now on the offensive end, the continuity ball screen and the ball getting from side to side and pick and rolls happening multiple times in, in possessions that puts the defense in a bind in a situation where you have to make a decision, um, is something that we didn't run. I would love to be a part of this offense this day, these days because of just that, the amount of pick and rolls that, that players are put in um, because it's the hardest thing for a defense to guard. You know, I think, uh, you know, the other ways Coach Few has really gotten better uh, over the course of his career is defensively. Um, you know, our groups weren't necessarily known for defense. We would have been in the top, you know, 20, 25 offensively across the country in regards to points per possession and efficiency, uh, maybe a little higher than that. But now, obviously Gonzaga's offense now is top five, top seven in the country year in, year out. Um, you know, I think two of the last three years they have had the best uh, most efficient offense in the country. So they're always going to hang their hat on that. Uh, we hung our hat on that uh, big time uh, during my couple-year stretch. But defensively, we were nowhere near um, what defensively Gonzaga's teams are now. Uh, I think on our teams, 
we did a nice job of mixing and matching zone defenses, whether it was a matchup, whether it was a two, three, um, or, or man to man principles as a man defense, as well as an occasional three quarter court trap where this Gonzaga groups, uh, you know, they do play mostly man to man with, uh, great intensity on the ball and great influence of keeping the ball, um, away from scoring areas due to whatever the scouting report details them out to wanting to do. They do play some man, or excuse me, they do play some zone here or there. Um, but the zone that they play with now is a little more aggressive. It's a little bit more trapping. It's a little bit more, um, useful because of the length that they have. And they, they don't run a lot of three-quarter court stuff. They did some last year. Um, it's something that you know I wish they would do a little bit more on occasion. Um, but you know, Coach Few does a tremendous job of mixing and matching um, the different types of defensive schemes that they use. But when you look at their efficiency now defensively, they are traditionally or consistently now a top-10 defensive um, program uh, year in and year out and, and that's based off of the efficiency numbers points per possession they do such a good job of that and one of the reasons they do that is because they rebound so well they are one of the best rebounding margin teams in the country uh, and that really started i believe to be honest with you after my junior year we got dominated by michigan state in the sweet 16 in the georgia dome in atlanta um, my junior year in 2001 uh, we were talented although that michigan state team had you know four maybe five future nba guys on the team we were talented we were good we were playing really well at the end of the season but we just could not rebound against those guys. Zach Randolph, Aloysius Anagane, a number of other guys just pounded us on the glass. And after that, I think Coach Few and the staff really took that to heart as we need to become better deep, uh, on the glass. And the very next preseason, that fall, it became a big-time emphasis uh, of practices. We were going to rebound. Um, and, and it couldn't just be relegated to the bigs on the team the guards also had a rebound um and and coach few and the staff do a, a tremendous job of statting that out and and re and figuring out how to gauge and, and grade that so my rebound numbers never were great but if you were to go back and look at coach jerry krauss's early analytics in in uh how they graded us out on our defensive numbers i was fine i was really good because i didn't necessarily get offensive or excuse me defensive rebounds but i did my job in regards to blocked my guy out and as a point guard if you're not a true rebounder you go to that nail area of the free throw line and you're available and ready to get a long rebound or you're quickly from that nail area in position to get an outlet pass from a teammate that gets the defensive rebound so i think that's another way that gonzaga and coach few has really improved uh as a coach um and has changed over the years um last question comes from jim in sacramento california and he asks what prepared you for your broadcast career more media training during your playing career or studying the craft during your transition into the field after playing well i, I think a couple things have really helped me um growing up i always wanted to play in the nba if I had a chance, um, that was going to be what I did. Luckily, uh, I was able to achieve and realize that dream, but I also knew that I was going to have to do something when I was done playing. And I always figured I wanted to get into coaching 
or broadcasting. And so those were my two interests and my two passions from early on. I started my college career at the University of Washington and I was going to be a communication studies major. And I took a lot of those classes in my first two years at UW before transferring to Gonzaga. When I transferred to Gonzaga, I was very lucky in that every single credit transferred over. And that is not typical. It's not ordinary. And I was lucky and that was the case. Um, so I was ahead of the game um, leading into my junior year and my redshirt year where I knew that I wasn't going to be traveling. I wasn't going to be playing games. I could get even further ahead uh, in regards to, to finishing out my degree. Um, and so I did that my redshirt junior year at Gonzaga. I really got ahead um, academically. I took not just a full load, but an extra load with another class or two to get ahead. And with that, Gonzaga also had a broadcasting degree. Um, and so I was able to really start focusing in um, and learning the broadcast world. Um, had to edit and clip videos. I had to shoot videos. Had to do projects. Um, it's completely different now digitally than what it was on tape. Um, way back when, I had uh, two friends in class, Scott Sayer, who uh, does some documentary stuff living in the, the Minneapolis, Minnesota area now, as well as uh, Eric Edelstein, who is an actor and work, works in the entertainment world in, in L.A. We worked together on a lot of projects, um, and uh, those were two, two friends of mine at the broadcasting school at Gonzaga that um, we worked together on projects and we kind of shared about what we wanted to do down the road and, and in the future um, with our broadcasting degrees. And lo and behold, Scott's shooting and editing and producing documentaries and fridges in front of the camera as an actor. And I'm now doing uh, broadcast analyst work uh, during college basketball season. But I was able to get a degree at GU from uh, in broadcasting. I was able to work a few games, not a ton, my redshirt year uh, for Gonzaga TV. GU TV is what they called it. Um, and what people don't understand and realize, that redshirt year coming off of an Elite Eight, Gonzaga, still a top 25 program in the country, had games that were broadcast by this broadcast school that was on local TV. It's amazing. If you were to find those games, I would love to see that because Eric Edelstein was the play-by-play guy. I did the color on a couple games. Uh, it's amazing to think where this Gonzaga program is, where now their schedule is dictated uh, by ESPN many times of when and where games are played. And they're at times don't play a game because it's not going to be on, on national TV. Um, so uh, that's kind of how my broadcasting career got started. And then as I was finishing up playing, um, thought about coaching, thought about broadcasting. The year after I was truly done playing, uh, I started doing some some TV stuff for Blazers TV um, in regards to pre- and post-game for the NBA playoffs for the Blazers. Started getting more and more comfortable in front of the camera. Uh, and then the following season, I started doing color analyst work alongside Greg Heister and Richard Fox in a three-man booth for KHQ TV in Spokane and Root um, before the NBA lockout finished where I did a year of... Uh, front office player development work for the Blazers. And then the following year, my family and I decided to move to Spokane and I went full-time in trying to, to grow a broadcasting career. Uh, it's something that uh, I don't think you really fully learn until you're immersed in it. Uh, it takes a lot of time and a lot of effort 
to improve in that craft. Some guys like Kendrick Perkins, who was a former teammate of mine with the Boston Celtics, can literally just jump right in because of a, a tremendous outgoing personality and, and having uh, the ability to share their opinions in unique ways. Some guys just are able to to jumpstart a career where others you have steps that you have to take and you have to gain experience. You got to get more comfortable in front of the camera. You have to understand how to to um, prepare. And, you know, for me, I'm about nine years in, I've made tremendous strides in my broadcasting career. It's something that I absolutely love and I'm looking forward to doing, um, you know, for the, for the next, however many years It's something that I really enjoy. And I, I hope, uh, people who listen to this podcast, as well as people that have listened to my games that I've called, whether it's KHQ TV for Gonzaga games, whether it's CBS sports, whether it's uh, Pac-12 network or, or some of the ESPN games that I've done on TV or the Westwood one radio games uh hopefully you guys uh appreciate the effort that i put in in preparing uh appreciate the improvement that i've made over the years and um hopefully you guys appreciate uh having the opportunity to listen to myself on the call and share just a little bit of the knowledge that i've been able to accumulate over the years about the game of basketball because i love it i love sharing some of my experiences and my knowledge and hopefully that comes through on some of the broadcasts so kathy jake and Jim, appreciate the questions. This has been the mailbag episode for September 15th, 2021. Looking forward to continue to bring a lot of content for the ISO and SB Live Sports. The ISO with Dan Dickow and SB Live Sports brought to you by the Believe Podcast Network. The number one podcast network or professional. As a former athlete, someone who always has taken great care of their body, I understand and believe and know how great supplementation can help. So if Balance 7 is helping Lamar Odom get back to what he would like to do on the court, that is awesome to see. You can see how Balance 7 has helped. And right now, if you go to balance7.com and use the promo code BELIEVE, that's B-L-E-A-V, you'll get $10 off their 32-ounce bottle. The bottle lasts 11 days, which is the perfect amount of time to feel the pH balancing drink. Go to work. Again, that's balance7.com and use the code BELIEVE at checkout. If it worked for him, it should be able to work for you too. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.